0: Welcome to Episode 178 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our interview today uh, is... a the first in what's going to be a series of uh, uh, unpacking of the issues around Section 702, uh, the uh, major national security surveillance program that has to be renewed by the end of the year, and uh, 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 Liza Goten Uh, of the Brennan Center for Justice uh, uh, in New York, and Becky Richards, the Civil Liberties and Privacy Officer of the National Security Agency, will be joining us for what I hope will be an interesting, lively uh, disagreement about some aspects of uh, Section 702. We'll be talking about the upstream portion of it, for those of you who are deep into it, and we'll explain that so everybody who listens will come away knowing what the issues are for the so called upstream part of the uh, uh, the program now however we 're going to do the news roundup uh, with Michael Vattis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department now. Uh partner in our New York office, uh, and Maury Shank, uh, former managing partner of Steptoe's London office, now advising Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump in. Uh, it's a time of ugliness for companies, uh, and uh, no one is... Uh, getting more ugly than uh, uh, Equifax, which uh, announced a breach of, oh, boy, 143 million uh, records, uh, um, which has to be, considering there are 300 million Americans, some of whom don't have any need for credit uh, or credit reports, uh, 143 million, uh, uh, Michael. That has to be 80 or 90 percent of the people who had credit reports at Equifax.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's it's well well over 50 percent of the population when you take out kids and and like you say people who who uh, haven't had a need for for credit um, and this isn't just someone's email address or even a physical address I mean this is the 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 um, keys to the kingdom as it were because a credit reporting agency like Equifax has your social security number in some instances your driver's license number your birth date you know the, the very sorts of information that a fraudster would need and and use to uh, uh, to basically uh, try to defraud you and set up credit in your name and, and things like that. So this is very sensitive information. And what's made things infinitely worse than this, the breach itself is is Equifax's fumbling um, of the response. It, it took uh, I think about five weeks to notify people uh not uh, at least anything i've read at the request of law enforcement just took them that long to get around to it and then there've been problems with the way they notified people uh requiring people if they if they took advantage of the the uh, years worth of free credit monitoring to give up their right to join a class action
0: to be fair, uh, I think they, I think they walked three, that one back, didn't they? they? They, I thought I saw something that said that they, they, they didn't mean to it, it, impose it, it, that requirement. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, yeah it's, but, it's,
1: but again, you know, it's, it's what, what, what people remember is, is the bumbling in the first place, not that they didn't walk it back. And and then, you know, with the other thing that's gotten a lot of news is that three senior executives, uh, sold, uh, uh significant amount of Stock uh, in in Equifax um, in the days after the the breach was discovered by the company. The company says that these people had no idea about the breach, but you know that remains to to be seen. So the whole the whole affair has, as you said, turned very ugly.
0: Yeah, it's. Um, um you do wonder what they were doing though in those five weeks uh um, because you know getting the website up and running and uh, uh making sure people were not doing anything that would uh, uh raise eyebrows with their stock uh, uh clearly wasn't on the list um, so yeah it's a uh, i mean it, it it it's tough substantively and then uh really tough uh, uh, uh kind of um, uh, optically uh you know it 's funny with these things uh, uh Every few months, um, somebody has a breach like this, and I remember the Target breach, which you know we've all sort of forgotten, but at the time it was just a such a big deal, um, and uh, they they were treated much more harshly in the press and and generally by the enforcers than Home Depot, which had the a similar hack uh, two or three weeks later. So, part of this undoubtedly is if this. Happens just when all the reporters are coming back from vacation and would like up to pick up a story where they don't have to do a lot of uh, additional research. Um, then you're in trouble. Uh, or if it happens in the uh, the run-up to Christmas and everybody's got a uh, a lead that says, you know, I, you better be careful about doing your uh, uh, Christmas shopping at Target. Uh, so it it, it is un- uh, there's a certain lightning-striking element to this, but uh, a lot of that you could uh, avoid if you really planned for what are we going to do in, when inevitably we have some disclosure we have to make.
1: Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, um, you would think that a company that that is entrusted with such um, uh, sensitive information would, would really have its response uh, nail down and, and do everything, um, quickly and professionally and, and well. And that was just not the case here.
0: And so here's the, the, the hidden, um, issue in this case that I predict we will hear more about is, um, uh Equifax has bragged about how much money it saved, outsourcing a lot of its uh, customer-facing uh, uh, technology to uh, an, an Indian outsourcer, uh, Infosys, I think. Uh, um, and, of course, that's where the flaw was that was exploited. Uh, so look for this to get mixed up with the immigration debate before we're done.
1: Yeah, although it was without really knowing yet what the <laughs> what the source of the breach was, um, you know, people are already throwing uh those sorts of theories around but until we know the facts, it's, you know, it's hard to say how much that's gonna amount to. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely
0: right. Okay, so that's one uh, set of ugliness for one company. Um, Russia and social media and the election is turning out to be a nightmare for big social media companies. Uh, uh, last week, it looks as though the Senate Intelligence Committee finally got uh, around to bringing in and getting testimony and uh, evidence from um, Twitter Facebook, maybe google i didn 't see coverage of that, but uh, uh, the other two were uh, uh, providing information and uh, not a complete coincidence i 'm sure Facebook announced that it found that there had been a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of ads purchased by people who didn't exist or people who had uh, apparent ties to Russia or the Russian government uh, uh, during the two years running up to the election. Uh, um, and uh, there's an enormous amount of attention now on those ads. Uh, uh, what did they say? Uh, who... Uh, uh, Put them on the air. How are they targeted? Because apparently they were targeted in a variety of ways, including geographically. Uh, uh, so lots of interest in that, and I, I predict this is going to be a big problem for social media companies because you know we all see social media and all of the privacy issues have been in the context of customer data. But what they really care about, what where they really make their money, is in advertising and this for the first time is a kind of Washington focus that says we need to know more about your ad business uh, in a way that uh, uh, has never been a popular issue before. Uh, and I, I see Facebook has already said, well, we can't produce, uh, it, it, we can't show you the ads, we can't give you details about the ads because of our privacy policy. Uh, I, I, I doubt that's going to work. And I, I predict that Having all this mixed up with the, uh, 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 with the Russian scandal is going to take away a lot of cover that would otherwise exist for, for companies that want to stay out of this. Uh, you know, uh, election ads on TV are heavily regulated, uh, uh, and if I were TV interests, Certainly, if I were, um, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times, I'd be saying, hey, we have to compete with these guys. They should be subject to the same restrictions that we're subject to. Uh, there ought to be more disclosure of how they do their ads and who buys them and uh, for what purpose and how they might affect the election. I think we're going to have a big uh, long-term fight over that. And I see that Senator Warner, who's on the Senate Intelligence Committee, has already said, you know, maybe we should be regulating here. Uh, and, of course, and I think um, uh, Chairman Burr said, yeah, we asked these guys about the uh, uh, what they knew about um, uh, recruiting of uh, ISIS, uh, uh, suicide bombers, uh, uh, on their sites and they blew us off and wouldn't give us, uh, uh, information. So the, uh, there's, there's not a lot of goodwill on the Senate Intelligence Committee toward any of these companies, my guess. So, uh, lots of, uh, lots of trouble to come for social media, uh, and indeed, um, uh, in Europe, uh, the Europeans have come back from vacation and have started delivering uh, one piece of bad news after another well at least one one piece of bad news and maybe one piece of good news uh, um, uh, the uh, European Court of Human rights. Has stepped in to rule on uh, what kinds of privacy rights uh, employers have to give when they're monitoring their employees online. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, what's the European Court of Human Rights doing here? This isn't this isn't a data protection case, or at least not directly, right?
2: Yeah, it's under Article Eight of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the privacy, uh, one of the articles relating to privacy, that you have a right to a private life. And they basically said that um, governments need to give a remedy for uh, people who feel that their privacy rights are interfered with at work. And this involved the case of a guy in Romania who was using um, private Internet. He was using his uh, Internet at work for private purposes, even though he had been told that that was not permitted. But he hadn't been told, or at least it's disputed, whether there would be monitoring of his communications. And when the company used a transcript of his communications with his brother and his fiancée, including some apparently private details, to prove that he had had been using it for private purposes, he he got upset. And now the European uh, Court of Human Rights has said, well, you know, you win to a certain
0: extent. So I, it was mostly they didn't disclose. So everybody who reads this case is uh, all the lawyers are going to tell their clients. No, you have to tell people all the bad things that can happen to them and all the, the, the scrutiny that you're going to give to uh, uh, their uh, use of uh, corporate network assets. Uh, and that'll probably solve your problem.
2: Yeah, I think it's two things. It's disclosure and making sure that the monitoring is reasonable in relation to the purpose of the monitoring. So, I, you know, you you can't be scanning and reading every personal email, although you could justify, I'm sure, some kind of automated scanning for exfiltration of information, certainly for people in sensitive jobs. Um, so those are, those are the restraints that this case effectively imposes.
0: So I'm, I, you know, I suspect that, you know, this of course could go bad. They could say, you know, it's not reasonable to, uh, to monitor certain kinds of communications and uh, the, then those communications will be the way in which, uh, uh, uh Chinese and Russian hackers exfiltrate data because they know it can't be watched. Uh, uh, and that'll, you know, that'll be a severe Um, competitive disadvantage for European industry, Uh, not that they don't already have enough. Uh, um, But my guess is that that's not going to happen. I'm puzzled and actually, frankly, astonished that a convention that governments signed up to saying, we will respect human rights, turns out to be the basis for the European Court of Human Rights essentially writing... A data protection regime for employees that gets down to the question of how much monitoring, uh, has to be made illegal by, by the Romanian, Romanian government.
2: Yes, uh, it's what we would call in the U.S. Substantive Due Process. The, the the court's reasoning is what the convention requires is that states give a proper remedy to somebody, uh, to employees for employment privacy violations. And here they've said that the remedy has to reflect certain substantive standards. I agree with you that it's not going to be a huge deal in the detail because data protection law, which does apply directly to private parties, already restricts monitoring. And most countries have rules on... Uh, what types of monitoring are permissible and how they can be justified, etc.
0: So this will be another mechanism by which, uh, post-Brexit, the U.K. is forced to do exactly what the European Union wants on uh, data protection issues. Uh, they've already got the adequacy uh, threat, and if uh, uh, the U.K. remains part of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, the entire uh, GDPR will be incorporated into uh, ECHR uh, jurisprudence.
2: I think that's right, although, frankly, the U.K. has a lot bigger fish to fry with Brexit, and as we discussed last (laughs) week, um, probably has plenty of economic and business incentives just to go along with European data protection law.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um so Symantec uh, uh tells us that uh uh the US electric grid has been penetrated by, likely by Russians. They they were a little coy about that, but sure sounded like uh, Russian uh, tools and techniques. Uh, um a, and what was they they think they called this Dragonfly 2.0 because they said these guys have a new and more sophisticated set of uh, tools that are designed to actually let them flip switch which is uh, deep in the industrial control system of the electric grid to the point of being able to turn off power. Um, a, and they've already installed these tools on a number of U.S. electric grid uh, um, uh, operating systems. Uh, um, pretty serious um, uh, statement, and one, frankly, raises the question whether the – Uh, Trump administration is going to treat that more seriously than past intrusions into our electric grid have been treated by the Obama administration. It's very easy to say nothing bad has happened, I'm not going to go pick a fight. Uh, uh, but when something bad happens, it's going to be so ugly that picking a fight may not even be possible. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what the uh, Trump administration's response to this is. I predict that they succumb to the inclination to say, well, since nothing's happening now, I guess we don't have to do anything. All right. Uh, and oh one more amori you should I should ask you about um, the um, uh the good news from uh, uh European courts. The ECJ uh, delivered some kind of qualified good news to Intel in their competition case where they had paid a 1 and a quarter they've been uh, uh, assessed a 1 and a quarter billion dollar fine for uh uh I think monopolization uh, and uh, uh the the European Court of Justice said, well, not so fast.
2: Yeah, so this fine came out way back in 2009 for abuse of a dominant position, which is what monopolization is called in Europe. And it was for giving rebates to some big computer makers and others who agreed to use all or almost all Intel chips. And the European Commission found that that disadvantaged AMD, issued the fine. Intel unusually has challenged this in the courts. A lot of these competition cases get settled or the company just pays the fine uh, and gets on with it. They fought it. Uh, They lost in 2014 at the European General Court, which is the lower level of the ECJ. Um, And But the ECJ just ruled in their favor. The the lower court had said basically this type of rebate conduct per se can be um, – is um conduct it is predatory pricing effectively and what the uh, ecj said is well you've got to look more carefully at intel's arguments that there's no way that these rebates could have damaged competition so they haven't won yet but now the the lower court has to take a closer look at intel's competition argument
0: well it's uh, i you know it Certainly uh, runs counter to my uh, favorite narrative, which is that the European courts uh, particularly hate U.S. tech companies. Uh, this is uh, um, it's clearly contrary to that uh, view. It, it does fit my narrative that uh, European uh, uh, competition law only comes down uh, heavily on uh, – tech companies for monopolization after their monopolies are uh, on the rocks and that's certainly true for Intel was true for Microsoft for that matter Uh, uh, so uh, whether it uh, uh, demonstrates uh, to uh, the uh, antitrust competition authorities in the EU that they might think about a different approach, I think, is uh, open to question. But uh, uh, by the time they collect this money, they'll be collecting it from a very different company than uh, they asked for it from.
2: Yeah, one wonders how much they are influenced by the fact that chips have moved on to the likes of NVIDIA's GPUs and mobile phone chips, in which Intel doesn't play a big role. But... Um, Well, well, we shall see what the, what the lower, whether the lower court considers that when they think about this again.
0: All right. Well, now let's let's do three or four lightning round uh, hack of the week. I love this hack. Uh everybody's familiar with the evil maid attack on your computer which requires uh that uh, uh someone have actual physical access to your computer or your phone uh, uh presumably when you leave it in your uh, apartment or your uh, uh hotel room to go uh, uh jogging. Uh but this is the evil dolphin attack. Uh, it, um, uh some security researchers in China demonstrated that if you played the uh, sounds at a high enough pitch, essentially at dolphin levels, no one could hear uh, your uh, statements invoking Google or Siri or uh, uh, Amazon, I'm not going to use their names, uh, except the actual machine uh, so that you would essentially play this. It uh, was a little more complicated than this, but basically you pay, play, played uh, something asking for uh, uh, Amazon to uh, play music or ship you 500 pounds of garbanzo beans uh, uh, and then you confirmed all at a dog whistle level that uh, no one but uh, the uh, Amazon device could hear. Uh, um, this is, you know, right now probably not practical. You have to be really close. It would have to be during a party. Uh, um, and frankly, during a party, you could probably just say it, whisper it in the ear of the uh, device. Um, uh, so I'm not sure anything really bad is going to happen here. But uh, now that it's been demonstrated as a... Uh, Possibility—it's uh, it, uh, you know people are going to think of cleverer ways to make money um, uh, with the evil dolphin attack. Lenovo has settled its case with the FTC uh, over the uh, uh, man-in-the-middle uh, uh, software that a third party had supplied to Lenovo and that Lenovo had installed on its computers. Uh, Michael, m- m- my thought was this looks a little cheap. Um, uh, as a settlement.
1: Well, it's it's typical for the FTC when it's when it's a case involving um, uh, an
0: alleged unfair practice
1: uh, that affects security um, or deception regarding something that has a security flaw, uh, not to have any monetary component, but just basically a, a cease and desist element, and that's what, that's the case here.
0: It's the usual. Uh, it's the usual but, twenty years of uh, of servitude. I uh,
1: I think so. I, I didn't. Check that part of the, uh, injunction, but that's, that is certainly the usual, uh, case. Um uh, yeah, it, it is, it does look like it's, uh, two years, every two years for 20 years. Um and this is also, this is not just with the FTC, but with 32 state AGs who jumped on the bandwagon for, for this settlement. Um but what, you know, it's interesting that Lenovo would install this software that basically, uh, monitored what people were looking at on, on websites when they were surfing the net and then would serve up ads for uh, retail partners of Superfish, which was the software developer uh, that did this with Lenovo. Um, no no notice to customers that this was going on. Uh, there was also uh, uh, the FTC alleged that, that this software interfered with um, the security uh, of HTTPS um, so that when consumers were visiting sites they thought were secure, they might not have actually been secure. And there was the ability to use this software to actually Monitor people's sensitive uh, transmissions, even if that's not what Superfish did.
0: Yeah, uh, it, uh, it 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 was pretty ugly. Uh, it, um, although you can see what's going on here, and all these other people in the uh, uh, in the chain of communication that is necessary to surf the web are saying how is it that we are really essential we're providing the entire computer and all the software and we don't get to run ads because um right. uh, people are encrypting their uh their communications we've got to find a way to, to to be able to run the ads and that's what was was going on here so uh um it's not that we'll we'll have more privacy uh, as a result of this so much as we'll have privacy from a few more actors uh, uh but other actors will know exactly what we're doing online
1: but it'd be it It would be nice if you've got software running on your computer to be told that that's the case and (laughs) that it's monitoring what you're doing. Don't you think even even a privacy... uh a uh, foe like you has got to not appreciate having software running without your knowledge.
0: I agree on that, uh, but I, uh, I I can't help saying that these privacy laws all seem to be surprisingly useful to the people who are incumbents and have lots of power, uh, uh, much more convenient and helpful to them than to ordinary consumers. Um, all right, uh two more uh quickies uh um, a, a follow up to last week's discussion about Kaspersky best buy has dumped Kaspersky software. This means that the uh, uh, the infection has moved from government to the private sector, uh, and I think we're uh, uh, you know uh, Kaspersky's in serious trouble because of the uh, attack from the uh, uh, defense department and uh, intelligence communities. And then finally, I can't believe this. Uh, Uber Uber did not just invent. God mode, where they could follow you around after you finished your ride. Uh, but now they've also invented something called Hell that was designed to uh, uh, fool Lyft drivers and Lyft into thinking they were about to get rides from people who didn't exist. Uh, and uh, as a result, we, we've just seen an announcement that uh, uh, Uber is being investigated by the FBI. I, I kind of asked myself, at first, why would the FBI care uh, and then I realized this is probably a computer Fraud and Abuse Act claim that uh, uh, uber was getting access to uh, the computers of Lyft drivers uh, or at least their phones, which is a computer uh, um, under false pretenses which would probably violate the CFAA um, so it just it doesn't rain but it pours on on uber uh, uh, which uh, seriously needs to reconsider its informal names for its uh, uh, most aggressive software products. Okay, on to our interview with Liza Gotin, who's the co-director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Uh, welcome, Liza. Thanks very much. And uh, uh, an old friend, Becky Re- Rebecca Richards, uh, who is the Civil Liberties and Privacy and... Transparency officer. This is your your title. Just gets longer and longer. It does. It does. uh, Okay. uh, Well, uh, it means you're doing everything that involves the public at NSA. There's just nobody else to call. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, So we're, we're. we're starting a program, uh, uh, we'd we'll probably do three or four of these, uh, uh, between now and the end of the year to talk about sex- section 702, which is the program that is going to be up for renewal, uh, cause it expires at the end of the year. Uh, uh, and it's, it's provoked some debate, but I, I would say a debate between the 40 yard lines. Uh, unlike 215, nobody questions that this is a valuable program for count- catching terrorists uh, uh and uh, uh there, there there's a recognition that because it touches the United States it needs more privacy and uh safeguards than uh, uh programs that operate overseas uh, uh so the program the debate is going to be about whether to, not whether to keep it but whether to change it, whether to renew it permanently, etc. So that's, that's what the debate is about, and the, the proposals for changing it, uh, turn on various aspects of the program, and we're gonna be talking about one of them today, which is the upstream side of this program. But let me take a step back, Um this is a program that targets people who are believed to be um, of interest to U.S. intelligence uh, for foreign intelligence purposes, outside the United States, foreigners. Uh, uh, so in that regard, it's very much like any other intelligence program NSA uh, would run overseas, with the exception that it's not run overseas. It's run in the United States. Uh, uh, these communications have a... Uh, at least get a cup of coffee in the United States. They pass through the United States or they go to a uh, provider of email services. Uh, uh, and to get access to the communications, uh, the uh, uh, National Security Agency catches them while they're having their coffee break. Uh, and because of that, because it's all touching the United States, um, the assumption has been it's going to require... Uh, at least some judicialization, some uh, standard uh, uh, for uh, determining who gets intercepted and who doesn't, uh, and obviously uh, since these communications are coming in and out of the United States, there's likely to be a lot of U.S. persons mixed up in the communications, and that has led to debates over the safeguards. So that's Basically, the uh, uh, where the debate is, what the program is, there are two big elements to this program, uh, and I, they're called upstream and downstream. You kind of have to imagine that uh, the communications that are on the Internet uh, uh, start on the backbone of the Internet. That's the upstream, and then... Go down to some service provider like Hotmail or Gmail, uh, and then back out to the user. Uh, the upstream part of this product is where the government dips in to the backbone. It goes to if you're looking for company names, it goes to AT and T and Verizon and says, uh, "We're looking for this kind of communication," uh, uh, and obtains it. Uh, or if it goes downstream, it goes to the Hotmail, Gmail, uh, other uh, retail provider who actually has a relationship with a particular customer, uh, and they say, we want this customer's communications. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about downstream downstream later. Today, we're talking about upstream, uh, and uh, I think that's all I need to say, I probably, uh, talked too long for our, uh, uh, listeners in any event. Uh, let me start with Becky. Now that, with that as an introduction, how, how would you say the upstream portion of 702 actually works?
3: So no matter what the type of collection is, whether it's downstream or upstream, NSA starts with our targeting procedures. And the targeting procedures, which are approved by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, state that we must have a selector, like, say, an email or a phone number of a foreigner outside the United States expected to produce foreign intelligence, as you said, and is related to a certification, which is more specific than just foreign intelligence. Um, it's something like international terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. Once we have the uh, the ID, the selector, then we send that to the U.S. electronic communications service provider uh, to acquire the communication transiting the Internet backbone. The information is then filtered for domestic communications, screened for the specific selectors, and then comes into NSA repositories. Now, in April of 2017, NSA voluntarily changed the way that we were doing that collection so that we are no longer getting what are referred to as about collections. So we are instead getting the to or the from. The about is where perhaps two foreign terrorists are talking about A third terrorist, and it was selecting on that.
0: Okay. Uh, Liza, um, you agree with that description of the program?
3: Uh, Roughly. I mean, I think it's accurate as
4: far as it goes. I think it's uh, incomplete, and I'm not faulting Becky for that. It's an incredibly complex program, and there are a lot of uh, nuances to it. I I mean, the one thing I'll I'll say is that the examples you always hear are two terrorists are talking to each other. There's absolutely no requirement in Section 702 for upstream or downstream that the target be a terrorist or suspected terrorist. Permissible targets are actually much broader than that, but I think we'll probably get back to that. I do want to just highlight a couple of important nuances about how Upstream in particular works that I think sometimes get lost in the big picture descriptions of Upstream. And the first is that the NSA is not able to filter out, to screen out, all entirely domestic communications and the... the, Target of surveillance has to be a foreigner overseas, but entirely domestic communications do get pulled in, and they s- still get pulled in now, even after the end of about collection. There are almost certainly fewer of them, uh, but the FISA court was very uh, clear that there would continue to be entirely domestic conversations being pulled in. That has um, very kind of
0: hard to see how that could happen.
4: Well, right? that gets because into if, if
0: it's true to, to a target um, who's overseas. Um, it's, it can't be completely domestic.
4: That's true for a single communication. Or from,
0: right? That's also right. Also single.
4: That's right. However, that's not how communications transit over the internet backbone. They transit in packets, and sometimes those include multi-communication, uh, transactions. Those
0: are really big packets.
4: Really, <laughs> well, actually I have no idea how big they are. You probably can't see them. But they can include a lot of discrete communications. And so even if, uh, even if the entire uh, sort of set of transactions, even if the ac- active user of that MCT—this gets into a lot of jargon, okay. and a lot right. of yep. technical stuff. Uh, suffice it to say, the FISA court said that there was still a uh, that domestic communications could still be uh, collected because of this multi-communication transaction. Okay. Issue and that differentiates upstream so, from um, from from downstream, and it and it has it has implications, important implications for what the back end protections for
0: Americans right, should be. Because I would have thought that to and from solved the problem. It doesn't, Becky. Uh, do, you, do you agree? So
3: I, I think that there are multi MCTs, multi communication transactions, and then there are the the single communication transactions, and we're getting what's what's in there.
0: So, it's if, so, uh, so on multi communication yeah. uh, 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 transactions. Let me give you an example of how I always thought about it, mm-hmm. which, which you can say that's classified if you want, uh, uh, but the, to, to understand what this might be, imagine that you log on to Gmail once a day, and Gmail sends you all your new emails in one big lump, which is probably the way they do it, uh, and if in there is one email that you sent to a terrorist and five emails that you sent to your mom, they're going to get the five emails that you sent to your mom, mixed up and and picked up by uh, NSA's Upstream program. Is that, is that fair?
3: That could theoretically be how that might happen.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, so that that gives us a feel that there are times when a whole bunch of stuff goes through, and there is a nugget to a terrorist uh, suspect, uh, uh, but there's other stuff. So...
3: But at that point, I mean, there are minimization procedures that are also in place. And so it's not just, um, you know, so, so, so we're layering a number of different protections as we go along. So you start with the targeting protection, targeting procedures in place. You say, I've got this particular selector. Please go out and, you know, let's go find this selector. We bring the information back. And, um, and, and then once you have that, there are, um, th- then, then we have additional protections that say if you come across, you know, if you do come across a wholly domestic communication, you need to destroy it. And, you know, th- those things will happen. And, and if, uh, instead, as you see that your target is talking to a U.S. person, then you will do some, the additional minimization procedures. Those will go also to some of the, uh, rules in terms of, um, what information can be disseminated or not? Um, but, but you have a number of these procedures. So it's not just.
0: Can that I ask, fact. Can, you, can I ask you a, a, a pointed question? Um, do you know how many such domestic communications have been destroyed?
3: Not off the top of my head.
0: You, you might actually be able to. Answer that at some point. But
4: she'd have to kill you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and every one of our listeners.
4: Can, can, can I speak to to one thing that Becky just said, which which is actually quite interesting, because... Because upstream collection was uh, pulling in wholly domestic communications, uh, one of the sort of special back-end protections that was in place for upstream that was different than it was for downstream uh, was that the NSA could not run U.S. person queries of data collected through upstream. It could not take an American's email address <coughs> or other identifying information and use it to search through those communications. Since about collection has been ended, uh, the FISA Court has said that there will still be inevitably some collection of wholly domestic communications, and yet it lifted that back-end protection and said that the NSA can now conduct U.S. person searches. And I would submit that that was premature. That it was—it's important to get a sense going forward without about collection. Um, how much wholly domestic traffic is being picked up before a decision is, is made to allow uh, to free U.S. person searches on this data.
3: So I think, though, it's important that, that we're starting out um, with the premise that 702, and you started that with your introduction, that 702 is somehow, because we're collecting, again, you know, we're getting compelled collection from a U.S. provider, that somehow we are going to get more U.S. person information. But I don't think where we do the collection actually changes who our foreign intelligence targets are actually communicating with. So if I have a foreign intelligence target in the Middle East talking to another foreign terrorist in the Middle East, they are no more or less likely. There are no U.S. persons in that. Um, collection. And they're no more or less likely to communicate with a U.S. person whether we did the collection using, uh, the compelled, uh, assistance of providers here in the U.S. or if they used it. They're using our providers because they're providing some of the best service in the world. And so you, you, I think there's a sort of false premise that we start with that we really are going to get more U.S. person collection just by, by, um, fact that they're using a U.S. provider.
0: So, Liza?
4: Well, a couple things. I mean, I would agree that we put way too much weight on where the surveillance actually occurs. And and I, ve- Becky, I will wholeheartedly join you in an effort to extend the protections of 702 <laughs> to overseas surveillance under Executive Order 12 triple three. I think really? those Really, you regimes, really want to do that? I I, I really do. But but maybe That's we should. Nuts. Maybe. well thank you.
0: <laughs>
3: That still doesn't some, change Some people
4: kind of like that idea, but we should we should talk about that on a, on a separate occasion. What I will say is just as it is true that two foreigners may be uh, using a U.S. service provider, it is also the case that two Americans may be in communication and their communications may transit not only overseas. But also over the internet backbone, and that is why, because of the inability to screen those out, that is why upstream collection is particularly likely to get. So, in, in
0: and for, for NSA out. feels, I'm sure, so, since they've been doing it since I was there, which means like since dirt was invented, I, I, that they've always had to screen Americans out. I, I, you know, I, I had a uh, uh, General Counsel for Operations, who used to say, you know, you could be intercepting communications from Minsk to Pinsk, and sooner or later, there's going to be an American on the line. And we NSA always had to watch for that and have protocols for dealing with it. And and so when when Becky says, you know, it's not any more likely that people who are, you know, one Syrian terrorist talking to another Syrian terrorist is going to have an American on the line, uh, that is no more likely if they're talking across the United States than if they're cross, uh, crossing India for their uh, international communications. So um, why shouldn't we continue to apply the rules that we have have always applied, and why should the civil liberties groups create new hassles for our ability to do agile communications intelligence, uh, uh, just because we need a court order because this is at and and not some foreign intercept?
4: Well, I, I, I would dispute your premise that we've always been allowed to do this. I mean, I think in 1978, FISA uh, required a warrant if there was going to be a communication, uh, if if the government wanted to wiretap a communication between an American and a foreign target. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, how often that was actually an issue because there's a lot of people say, well, satellite surveillance uh, was by far the dominant method of international communication back in nineteen seventy eight. I think people who've looked very closely at that claim, including David Chris, who was former head of the National Security Division, um, have come to the conclusion, looking at the sort of direct evidence, that anywhere between a third to a half of communications that transited internationally in the late 1970s were going through wires through, uh, you know, wire cables, and therefore, since 1978, if the government has wanted to wiretap international communications between an American and a foreign target, at least half the time, it's but it's needed to get get that, a warrant. That's so not what
3: we're doing. I mean, this is this is a foreign. Tar- we're not targeting the American, and we're all and and we've sort of had. I mean, what seven? I'm not saying is. targeting
4: America. I'm saying between an American and a foreign target under FISA since 1978. That changed in 2007.
0: Actually, be- I I think if we if if if, if NSA were collecting in Syria. Um, and a communication came in from the United States to their Syrian target, they would have picked it up uh, it, 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 without any court order or anything of the sort. And we want them to do that.
4: Well, if they had been collecting, though, on the Internet backbone, shall we? There wasn't an Internet. But if right. they had been collecting from the U.S. Yes, against but, a foreign but that's, target. Isn't
0: that a little bit technical, right? I mean, I, 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 no one thinks that AT&T's rights are at stake here. Uh, they go to court because there's something in the United States that has to be done. And so that getting a court order is considered an appropriate, uh, sort of half measure. But the, the, uh, the, the fact is that the intercept doesn't look any different, uh, from a civil liberties point of view or an intelligence collection point of view. Uh, between doing it in the United States on the backbone and doing it in Syria on the
4: backbone. Well, I would agree with that. Again, I think that's why we need more protections for overseas collection. But let me just say that Congress did not pass FISA in 1978 to protect at and Congress enacted a warrant requirement, even when the foreigner was the target, for wiretapping in 1978 to protect Americans. And I think that that protection uh, – again, I, I – I think that we, a more productive sort of way to take this conversation, I think, I mean, we're not going to have a warrant requirement going forward for foreign targets. We're not. So I think a, a better way to talk about this is what is the correct response to the fact that when the NSA conducts surveillance on a foreign target in today's digital era, the information era, it is going to be collecting massive amounts of Americans so
3: I think that's the place where I'm not sure I entirely agree that it's, quote, massive amounts of American communications. And so while we've agreed we are not gonna go, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to go, we're not going to have a conversation about counting. Um, but th- but but again, I go back to the premise. We're starting with a foreign intelligence target outside the United States. The two Syrians talking to each other that are producing foreign intelligence are no more or less likely to be in contact with a U.S. person because we are picking them up through the uh, compelled assistance in upstream. Fine, fine. But my I I think we're talking about something
4: different now, which is given that they are picking up that they are going to pick up Americans communications with the foreign targets who are not just terrorists, it can be any foreigner overseas, as long as there's some foreign intelligence information to be had. And that is fairly broadly defined. Given that we're going to get a lot of information about Americans, what is the right way to protect that information, if not a warrant?
0: Well, for 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 50 years, or at least since the 70s. Uh, the, uh, uh, the National Security Agency has protected that principally with minimization requirements for destroying the uh, confirmed U.S. Uh, uh, communications and protecting U.S. person identities. Um, and so the, one of the questions would be, uh, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons they do that is so that they can move quickly through the, uh, 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 the intercepts looking for intelligence uh, uh, without spending a lot of time in advance getting their searches approved uh, uh, because obviously it takes a lot uh, uh, to get those approved. Um, and that's how they've done it up to now. I, I, I think it's plausible to say, um, why is it that you'd like it done less efficiently uh in the 702 <laughs> that's
3: program
4: what i'm looking for i'm looking for well i'm not sure you know what i'd like to have happen cuz we haven't discussed that yet
0: okay so what would you propose be done i'm not done proposing about-
4: a, i'm not proposing a work appointment okay, that's purpos- what
0: you're assuming okay so you this is this is this is like uh uh uh, somebody saying this might be a five thousand dollar conversation, but for you two hundred dollars. So you've 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 put <laughs> on the table the warrant requirement. You're not going to ask for it. What 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 do you yeah. think should be done? Yeah.
4: Like? Okay. Let me go back and and just say once more because I think this is important that we are not comparing Section seven hundred two to overseas com- surveillance. We are comparing Section seven hundred two. If we're going to compare apples mm-hmm. to apples here, to the surveillance that took place. On U.S. soil prior to Section 702, and that surveillance, when it was done through wiretapping, did require a warrant. So I, I just, mm-hmm. and I okay. have to say that okay. because you keep saying okay. that I'm trying to make it less efficient, yeah. and that's not the case. But uh, let me go on and say that, to the extent, you know, Americans are not legitimate targets of Absolutely Section 702; right. they are not, okay. right? Like Foreigners, for sure. else, but we know they're going to get swept up in large amounts, even though the NSA won't tell us how much.
0: Or so, agree with it
4: being large. <laughs> so, or agree with being large, although conveniently they can't tell us how much. So, if you're going to be sweeping that in anyway, even though they are not legitimate targets, what is the best way to deal with that situation? And I would say there's, there's two ways you can do it. The first thing is to make sure that your upfront collection is as targeted as it possibly can be. And the wider you cast your net in terms of targets, the more incidental collection you're going to have. And the more you allow surveillance of targets who are not suspected of any kind of wrongdoing, for instance, the more you are going to get the communications of ordinary Americans who just happen to be talking to friends and relatives and business associates overseas. So this gets back to the fact that currently targets of Section 702 surveillance can be any foreigner overseas, as long as they're expected, as long as The collection is expected to acquire foreign intelligence information, which is defined broadly enough to encompass conversations about current So,
3: right. So I just want to jump in here and say that, 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 you know, it's it's more specific. And this is an interesting place where we get to here's the oversight and here's what the foreign intelligence, you know, what the FISC is going to say and do. And so you have this mixture of a definition here, but then you have the certifications that have been approved by the court that are actually more narrow, but it does give that flexibility because we don't know exactly what tomorrow's, um, you know, threats are going to be, but we still would have to go back to the court. We'd have to go through Department of Justice. And so you have a place where you do have oversight. You have a broad definition of foreign intelligence, as has been said, but then you have a process that you narrow that down. And so I think it's important to to think of there are a couple of different ways that we're putting those protections in place. And so while the the statute itself says one thing, we then have a process through those certifications.
4: Sure. And one of those certifications has been leaked. and I know you're not allowed to comment on that, but the certification for foreign powers includes most of the countries in the world, and it includes Antigua, St. Lucia. Switzerland. So if the foreign intelligence relates to Switzerland, and it relates to the conduct of foreign affairs, if I'm talking to my German stepmother who lives in Switzerland, she would qualify as any foreigner overseas, if she and I are talking about whether or not Trump should build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, Mexico's on this list of countries, we fall within this certification. Now, I'm not saying the NSA is collecting our communications. I'm saying why do we have a regime that allows the
3: NSA to collect those communications? But but when we look at, for example, how many targets we have, we have 106,000 targets, which is, there's no way your stepmother is going to be one of those 106,000. If we look at how many people are in the world and where the where are those threat spots? There's- yeah,
0: and let me let me let me just say, have you ever tried to do intelligence in Switzerland? It's a bear. Those guys are really – their counterintelligence guys are really good. I'm guessing uh, in
4: Antigua they're not as strong. My but, point. But, but the,
0: the, the, the point is, <laughs> it, the, yes, they are, they are a neutral country and stuff, but there is no doubt that there's a lot of of intelligence collection going on there on all sides. Uh, and knowing what counterintelligence investigations are going on at any uh, given time is an important national security and foreign I'm
4: intelligence. I'm not interest. saying that we should so, not so, have – I'm not so saying we should not – what? I'm not saying we should not collect foreign intelligence in Switzerland or from Switzerland. What I'm saying is that the definition has to be narrowed than any foreigner who happens to talk about something to do with Switzerland. I mean, it, to, to paraphrase, to quote you, that's just nuts
2: to, <laughs> to have it
4: be that broad. And it may, and that's great that you're not surveilling currently my stepmother. I don't want a law that allows you to surveil my stepmother and, because, and, again, and that is that's the pro- That
0: is the problem. Trying to set these limitations in advance, Um, when the foreign intelligence interests of the United States shift so dramatically, and uh, in response to events, um, runs the risk that we will, you know, I don't think that we would have said, oh, yeah, uh, we think uh, for uh, election security is a proper top target of intelligence collection uh, for NSA if you had asked us that in 2015. Uh, it could have got, gotten dropped on the cutting room floor when people were putting together their assessments of what uh, intelligence authorities ought to be, and we would have been Deeply sorry it that we had done that. It
4: certainly doesn't have to be that specific, but you could certainly limit it to surveillance that is likely to pr- produce information about a threat to the United States' security or United States' national interest, and that would absolutely include interference with an election. It's not, it, it, you know, it, it, let's not make this a reductio but, but ad absurdum. There's so so something in between any foreigner overseas, and you have to specify literally every piece of intelligence I, I, that can I, collected. I have to
0: say, I, I wonder... How much this has to do with civil liberties at that point? Because, you know, uh, forcing people to refine exactly what they're looking for in advance is never going to prevent abuses. Right? Well, uh,
4: I mean, arguably nothing will. But the best we can do is laws that actually set the limits. I mean, yes, you may have this, an administration this, this, that regards, disregards feels, every law. This
0: just feels, no, I, th- th- this is a, you can, if, if if somebody really wanted you and your stepmother's conversations, I'm sure they could squeeze it into what was a perfectly legitimate set of foreign intelligence uh, uh, concerns. Only uh, if you
4: define uh, it, only if you define it too broadly. I, I,
0: I, I don't think so. I, I think, was I think responding were, to it. This mm-hmm. effort. To, to refine the uh, the kinds of things that NSA can do with respect to overseas collection collection on on, on uh, foreigners is a way of creating hurdles that sound kind of uh, oh well what 's the harm in that and then have a way of tripping us up when we want to do intelligence that we hadn 't uh, Contemplated in advance in a hurry. That, and, that's my concern.
4: And I see them as critical protections for American civil liberties. And I'll point out that before 2007, for what was it? Wait, 20 the difference or between years, national
0: security threats and foreign intelligence interests in the United States, that's critical for uh, civil liberties in af- the United States? Absolutely. Oh, okay. if, if
4: foreign intelligence interests are defined the way it is in the statute right now, so
0: let me let me let me let me turn the conversation to Becky because I haven't abused Becky yet, <laughs> but I will uh, um, about communications
3: about communications.
0: So yes. so this is this is what originally had the civil liberties. Uh, groups up in arms and led to the FISA court imposing the restrictions. Uh, about communications could be, yeah, there's an email in which um, uh, the uh, uh, two terrorists are talking about a third. Uh, but isn't it also the case, I mean, my memory of how people do uh, surveillance on networks, and this is not the government anybody has to do this you have to do deep packet inspection you have to you get a packet it has maybe a whole bunch of communications all jammed in together uh and that packet is going from verizon to comcast uh, and that's the to and the from nobody cares about that and that that's not the right target you need to take those that packet apart and look for the packets inside it those packets might or might not be uh, uh packets from an individual to another individual more likely they're from one ISP to another ISP so you take those packets apart eventually you get down and find the actual to and from emails uh but to be sure you've gotten deep enough into it, you're probably also going to be looking at some of the content of the communication. And if you find the email address in the content, uh, it's going to flag it. Uh, and so I've always assumed that the about problem, uh, the the difficulty that NSA has is taking apart all these packets, uh, but making sure you don't take that last packet apart and find the content uh, is a tricky engineering problem. Um, you don't have to comment, but if that's the case, it seems to me that that's why you needed about communications, even to get all of the two in the front.
3: So, not commenting on any of that, um, we definitely have made a decision that was a responsible decision given the compliance incident and what we found in terms of some systematic problems with how we were conducting our our uh, upstream collection that we needed to narrow what we were doing and to leave some of the foreign intelligence on the floor and really focus ourselves on the to and the from and um and, and now, let, let
0: me let me stop you took enormous abuse from the FISA court for not having run the controls the way you said you were going to. It was going to be a big debating point for Liza and her folks uh, uh, and so at some point you said this is not worth it. We're going to stop collecting it because we're just going to take endless abuse and it could cost us something more significant. Uh, that's a very uh, uh, pragmatic political decision but I want to talk about the cost. If I'm right that you can't actually um get rid of about without also running the risk of losing some actual tos and froms um there's a real intelligence cost to dropping about isn't there
3: so so there's no question there's a, tel- a, a, a drop in foreign intelligence absolutely and and we've said that which is but we also made a calculated a, a, a responsible decision that said we are not able today for technical means to meet the specific requirements that the FISC has put in place. And the FISC was was none too pleased with us, and they held our feet to the fire and said, okay. And I say, if you can't do it the way we're expecting you to do it, then, then you best go back and, and look at what, what your options were. And we took um, about six months and really spent some time and said, okay, we can do this so that we only get the twos and from's. Um, so that we can get the the critical most of them t-
0: anyway. Huh? The
3: critical tos and froms that we need to get, and we will go back and look. And if the environment changes, if the then then and as we look at the technical capabilities, then if we need to go back up upstream because we need to because the threat environment or the technical environment has changed, then then you know we'll we'll sort of work through that. But we'll have to go back to the court before we do that. And the court certainly, as you can see from all of our court filings, is holding us to you know really making sure that we're doing it. So so. So here's a place where a practical and responsible decision was made to drop the about at this point because we couldn't meet the requirements. And we will work to
0: The courts made up requirements, right?
3: The courts well
0: so they just made them up, right?
3: Well, I mean, the courts, you know, they said, you you know, no U.S. person queries here. We're going to follow those requirements. I mean, yes, we, we are going to follow the, those protections that are in place. If we can't follow the protections, we sh- we need to reassess. And that's exactly what we've done here. And so what I would say is, yes, was there, is there a foreign intelligence loss? Yes. Have we made the right decision in terms of going back and making sure that we are meeting the requirements of the court? Yes. And um, will we perhaps someday go back up on abouts? Perhaps. And at which point we would have to go back to the court, and the court would be making darn sure that we're going to follow and able to do all of those different things.
0: So, Liza, one of the things that I think you have advocated is um, making the ban on about collection permanent in the statute. Yes. Uh, we're is losing. That we're losing. No, but it's it's really dangerous because we're losing intelligence. Uh, we, you know, NSA has said that, and and uh, multiple times, uh, they made a decision that I think is a pragmatic political decision. That, and I didn't hear Becky say it wasn't. I uh, that they couldn't take the pain of having you standing on the sideline saying, look, they're violating the law, they're violating the court orders, they're violating the court orders. Um, a- and so they uh, they dropped it, but they dropped real intelligence about terrorists uh, as part of that. Uh, uh, why should we say you can never go back and try it again, even if the technology gets better?
4: Well, first of all, the way you characterized it is actually quite different from how Becky just did. She said that they're getting the critical to and from uh, communications that they need. The NSA, in its public statement, said that by this change it was making would retain the um, quoting would retain the upstream collection that provides the greatest value to national so, security. So okay,
0: sure, that's at least at least 51 percent of what they were getting. They're still getting. That's great. I I, I don't uh, think that's I, what that means. No, it, I,
4: they they seem to be emphasizing the greatest part.
0: It is the greatest part. They seem
4: to be so, emphasizing that we shouldn't be worried that they're getting what they
3: need to be. I, and you can take they, that up with them, are, but I'm well, taking it uh, uh,
0: Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I think,
3: I think the way to think about this, and maybe maybe just a to say, why do you not want to ban that? Well, in 1978, we legislated under FISA a technical means that then had to be updated in 2007, 2008. Liza doesn't necessarily agree with that update, but but that was a place where we when we see that we're legislating the technical aspects of, of, the, te- of the technology, I guess, <laughs> um, that's not necessarily going to put us in the right place going forward. What you do see here is that the FISC is really... Holding our feet to the ground and doing very good, very strong oversight. So this this program or this aspect
4: of the program, I should say, of Upstream operated unconstitutionally for nine years, almost nine years. I don't think we can call this an oversight success story, whatever else you want to call it. I, I think it's important. Don't to Don't you? A step so let back. me stop on that. Yeah.
0: It's also a legal failure. This is the. Best counterterrorism surveillance program we have today. I, uh, and, and the P-Club has said it's an enormous success. Better than
4: EO 12333? I hadn't heard that before. Well, the
0: EO 12333 is a host of programs, but, uh, right. uh so is so, 702. Uh, <laughs> okay. At least, or on. at least two. I, uh, but, uh, it, it has enormous value. Um, and what you're saying is, well, we wrote a law in 1978 that was, um, so constricting that you couldn 't do it without violating the you couldn 't do this enormously valuable thing that we are running without obvious uh, uh national security or civil liberties abuses uh for the last several years uh you couldn 't do it. Because the law we wrote was too narrow, and I like that. I'd like to start writing narrower and narrower laws without regard to the future, uh, uh, because I just sort of think that more law is just a good thing here. Is that is that I'm really your
4: position? I'm pretty sure that's not what I said. That's pretty close. I'm pretty sure. Nope. <laughs> nope. Because, I, I, again... Yeah,
0: you're, as- you're, you're, you're throwing all kinds of... You're just Basically, it, it feels like... Uh, what was that Seuss story about the moose that keeps getting more and more people moving into his antlers until he finally <laughs> falls over? I, I, that's what I feel like. So are, are you you're, interested you're in knowing my
4: thoughts about about collection?
0: Uh, yes, but I, I, I am characterizing what you've already said. Well, we should have controls on uh, new legislative controls on about new legislative controls on what is foreign intelligence. Uh, I, and I don't know all the ways in which that might constrain us. But, uh, oh, you know, a little more law would be a good thing here.
4: I would not say that a little more law is necessarily a good thing no matter what that law is. I have very specific ideas for ways in which you could narrow foreign intelligence collection at the front end. I have specific ideas about about collection. I'm not sure if you're asking for them or not. Um, They are not, I'm not proposing a return to 1978 and I have not done that. Um, And so, but there are specific measures that I think would keep in place the core of Section 702, the ability to go after threats actual threats to the U.S. interests and actual uh, suspected terrorists, as well as other, uh, you know, individual, individuals who might have uh, information about that is relevant to our national security and to our national interests. And I think that can be done while simultaneously bolstering protections for Americans, and you know, I, I don't see that as being uh, somehow overly legalistic, and I don't see that as throwing barriers in, fr- in front of the intelligence community. I mean, I live in Washington D.C. I have two kids who walk to school in the morning. I care very deeply about about preventing terrorist attacks. So, you know, I, I wouldn't myself recommend any changes or any civil liberties protections that I thought would inhibit the NSA's ability. I'm going based on what the NSA has said about why, it, how it uses this authority, why it needs it. It's public characterizations of its success stories, none of which suggest remotely that it needs the ability to go after my stepmother, which it now has, none of which suggests it needs the ability to go after any, that the definition of foreign intelligence needs to be as broad as it is. And I do think that having stronger minimization procedures on the back end is an extremely important protection for Americans. Not because we've seen such wild abuse, but because the potential for abuse is very, very clearly there. And surveillance in our country has a long, long history that involves a lot of abuse. And a lot of what ended that abuse was protections that were put in place in 1978 that have been stripped away. So that is part of uh, that's the basis for my for my advocating what I'm advocating. Not that I think it'd be really fun to slow down the NSA and to throw more law at every problem. So
3: I think okay. though, the interesting thing is we haven't seen the abuses that we saw pre 1978. And this and you instance. agree with and, that, either, right? Uh, w- yeah, there's been no evidence. There's, there's, no, been no, evidence, public evidence. there's been no public evidence. There's no public evidence. And and we've said that uh, r- repeatedly that, that there have been yeah. abuses. So I think those controls have worked. And and one of the things that we have done is we have increased the amount of transparency that's been in there. So we now have the annual transparency report. We have numbers that over time are providing you insight to the fact that 106,000 targets in a world of a billion people is a pretty small percentage of people who have actually met the definition of what we're looking for and are, are really you know, sort of producing that foreign intelligence. And so the likelihood that your stepmother is one of those 106,000 seems pretty small. But it does matter who they are, and it does matter what the criteria are for
4: choosing them. And Absolutely. that is and that is, that is an area where I think the law could be tightened in a way that would provide better safeguards. And in terms of, you know, we haven't seen the abuse. My gosh, it hasn't even been 10 years. It takes a while for cultures to change. And culture follows law. Before 1978, there was a very different culture within all the intelligence agencies. That changed when certain legal and institutional changes were put in place. As we're seeing the law ratcheted back, the institutional protections ratcheted back, we will start to see. Human nature hasn't changed. The, the I, potential I, for abuse is there, and in the wrong is, hands, yes, we're going to start to see. But I, okay, so
0: I I think we, we, we heard that, and we've heard some of your solutions. Uh, it, uh, you've heard me express views on them. Let me give Becky a chance <coughs> to close with what you would do with 702. What do you think Congress should do about 702?
3: I think they should pass it with clean <laughs> wreath authorization and if you want to make it permanent – go for it. Uh, you know, as the Civil Liberties Privacy <laughs> Transparency <laughs> Officer, boy, that was
0: a, that was a kind of lukewarm endorsement of the uh, the White House position on this. I, I, that wasn't meant to be a lukewarm. Uh,
3: I'm sorry, that was not meant to be a <laughs> lukewarm. What I was going to say is, I have now been at the position as the Civil Liberties Privacy Transparency Officer for the last three and a half years. I have spent umpteen hours seeing how 702 is actually implemented, looking at the protections day in and day out. That is my job um, to, to look at those. Things. And there aren't the abuses. There's extraordinary amount of care taken by our analysts, by oversight, whether it's Department of Justice, ODNI, our own, um, the P Club um, and Congress. I mean, we have a number, we have put in a number of different important um, regimes to ensure that we don't have those abuses. And those are the things I worry about from the inside. And so what I would say is, no, it's not a lukewarm endorsement at all. And I'm sorry if it came across that way.
0: (laughs) You you, you may have been reflecting Uh, um, the prospects for that. The
3: prospects <laughs> for uh, yeah. So permanent reauthorization, clean reauthorization. Um, but but I, I think that that this is a, a law that is really has has was brought together originally across party lines that looked at the privacy protections and the national security together and said you know title you know title one sort of traditional FISA isn't successful in this case. There are just not enough lawyers. There are just not enough judges. There are just not enough people to do this. But there is true foreign intelligence because it turns out our communication service providers are really good at providing service to everyone in the world, and so we need to come up with something that's sort of in that place, that's in between those two, but still has the privacy protections. Okay. I don't disagree with that at all. And, and once again, I'm not advocating going back to Title One. I. I,
4: I, and I just, I just think that there is room to bolster the privacy protections that exist, and some of the things that you that you say that that the NSA is doing right now, mm-hmm. some of the things that I know the NSA is doing right now, that are not. Written into statute, I think they should be written into statute because we can't count on self-restraint and self-policing. In you know, inevitably, we can't count on that. You know, going forward. So, would you trade that for
0: uh, for a clean reoff without a sunset?
4: Trade what? It wouldn't be a clean. It wouldn't be a clean reoff. I'm saying we need to codify. So, (laughs) so I
0: I clean clean in the sense that there would be no um, sunset.
4: I would well. I would trade a bill that has all of the reforms I'm interested in without a sunset. But I
0: don't don't think you would. Uh, No, I'm quite confident I wouldn't. uh, But I'm I'm glad that you at least raised the possibility of a clean reauth. I'm sorry, a um, a, no no sunset uh, 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 provision. Um, Are you guys going to take this on the road? Uh, Can you uh, can you tell us when you're next appearing? uh, (laughs) Because this is really entertaining.
4: Uh, so, I mean, I will be, I'm writing an article on, um, incidental collection, the inc- incidental overhear doctrine in section 702 for you legal nerds out there that will be you crank
0: that stuff. It, out. That
4: will be, I, I try, yeah, it will sure. be in the American criminal law review coming up, I think around the end of the year, although not actually sure. And then uh, I'll be discussing FISA on a panel at the annual conference of the ABA Standing Committee on National Security Law in November. I'm sure I'll see you there. Yes, you probably Bob will. Bob and I are going to have a great time. Oh, on that Bob Litt. Panel. Yes.
0: Oh, yes. Well, that, yes. So. Uh, that'll be even more. He's got a better sense of humor than <laughs> I do. <so. laughs>
4: Can I call him nuts?
0: Um, Is that legit? I I don't know. We'll talk afterwards. You can say that that, that I said that uh, in the uh, (laughs) after discussion. Uh, And, Becky, uh, where are you next appearing?
3: Tomorrow, of all places, (laughs) but not on 702. Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, talking about national security and privacy. And um, actually, I'll be... uh, I'm going to be talking a lot over the next couple of weeks. So. All right.
0: Well, we'll look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, thanks to uh, Eliza Gautain, uh and Becky Richards, also to Michael Vattis and Maury Shank for the News Roundup. This has been Episode 178 of the Cyber Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, I should say, Mark, Election Day on your uh, calendar, we are going to have a uh, live discussion uh, uh, on the podcast of election security uh, uh, with a, a group of hackers and security experts and policy experts uh, here at Steptoe at DuPont Circle in Washington. So come on by if you want to send us a note at uh, uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com to let us know you'll, you're coming. We'll reserve a seat uh, and we may have a sign-up uh, website at some point in the future. Uh, uh, if you nominate some Somebody to appear on the show and uh, we bring them on. We will give you uh, one of our highly coveted Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast mugs, uh, uh, which will be conveying to both of our uh, uh, in-person uh, uh, panel today. Uh, soon we're going to have Jeanette Manfra, who's the Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Cybersecurity and the only adult at home uh, on cybersecurity at DHS. Um, we're going to have um, John Yu and Jeremy Rabkin uh, on to discuss their upcoming book on how cyber robots and space weapons will change the rules for war. Liza will tell them that they're all wrong and they need new rules and new law. Uh, we'll have Richard Danzig, uh, former Secretary of the Navy, on talking about his new uh, uh, think piece on the e- effect of technology on defense issues. Uh, uh, so lots to come, uh, uh, join us for those and other parts of the podcast as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.